This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with Aileen Burford-Mason. Dr. Burford-Mason has a PhD in immunology. She's a biochemist and an expert in evidence-based nutrition. She was formerly assistant professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Burford Mason maintains a practice in nutrition in Toronto, Canada, and also teaches healthcare professionals how to use diet and nutritional supplements in clinical practice. She's the author of books, The Healthy Brain and Eat Well, Age Better. Her latest book is called The War Against Viruses, How the Science of Optimal Nutrition Can Help You Win. Dr. Burford Mason joins me today from Toronto. Welcome to the Life Speak podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start out with the title of the book. What exactly is optimal nutrition? Well, optimal nutrition is really making sure that we have peak amounts of the right nutrients that our body needs, not just for general repair and maintenance, which we often overlook, but also for the moment-to-moment functioning of the body, keeping the heart beating properly, keeping blood pressure under control, keeping digestion working properly. And the immune system is no different. It requires all of the nutrients. And there is such a widespread need across all of these systems that often we're not fully functional. We're almost there, but we're not quite there. So we have shortfalls of some of the nutrients that we need for for functioning well. That's what optimal nutritional means, the best possible functioning. In your new book, you mentioned that at the end of November 2020, there were more than 83,000 new studies published on COVID-19, and out of these, less than 2% were concerned about nutrition. The few studies that were done showed that malnutrition was common in COVID patients admitted to intensive care units, that malnutrition was associated with poor outcomes. Evidence shows that when we optimize our nutrition, as you said, we boost our immune system to the point where we can actually slow down or prevent dementia, chronic illnesses like diabetes and heart disease and even coronavirus. And yet nutrition has had somewhat of a bad rap in medicine. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, I just want to backtrack a little bit and say that it's sort of incorrect, or maybe it's a red flag to talk about boosting the immune system. What we found during COVID, which, you know, most immunologists knew anyway, is the immune system works in two phases. The first phase is where the complex interplay of molecules and cells gets the virus under control. But then there's a second phase where we have to switch off the mechanism we've used to control the virus, which is inflammation. And that second phase, the virus is under control, but that's what's causing the main problems. It's an overactive immune system. So sometimes we give the wrong impression when we say boost the immune system. I think we should really be talking about control it, appropriate controls of the immune system. So talking about why nutrition has such low esteem, really, in the medical world, and it's largely historical, it goes back to the fact that really nutrition has never been given the prominence in a medical education that it should be. It is, after all, the maintenance of the system. We don't educate engineers and architects without any knowledge of the materials they use 
to build and maintain structures. We wouldn't do that. But it seems appropriate that we educate doctors without any knowledge or without any in-depth knowledge of the nutrients that are used, and they only come from our food or if we supplement, that are used to keep the body working effectively, repairing itself, maintaining itself, and keeping things like the immune system on, you know, top form. We're bombarded with headlines, you know, online in the news, vitamin D can, you know, prevent cancer, something else can cause cancer. You know, I think one of the loudest messages I'm getting from your book is, or that I did get from your book, is that when it comes to nutrition, so many of us are woefully misinformed. How can the average person know what is true and what isn't? Well, in the world we live in, I think it's extremely difficult. You have to really be on your toes to know the difference between what we've come to call fake news and real genuine information. Um, Unfortunately, there's been a tendency, even among people who should know better, to consider nutrition. Any of the discussions we had around vitamin D and COVID, for example, were often labeled as referred to any suggestion that vitamin D might be important for the Canadian population to be taking as fake news. So we're getting misinformation from people who should be better equipped to interpret the information, if you like, for us. This is part of everyday life. It's really not restricted to to nutrition. We're finding it difficult to be sure Social media and the internet have allowed a proliferation of misinformation. That's really the problem. Why has nutrition been your life's work? Why are you so passionate about educating people about it? Oh, well, I have to go back really over my career. It hasn't, it's been my life interest, but not my life employment or career, so to speak. But in the early days when I was involved in immunological research and I was largely looking at immune responses in people with inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and and other diseases of the gastrointestinal tract. I became aware really that there was a literature, nutrition and lack of certain key nutrients, for example, something like zinc in Crohn's disease, that was actually hampering recovery. And so I started reading a great deal. And I got impatient eventually thinking, we're leaving out a big part here of the solution to this problem. It's not all just drugs. It's also diet and nutrition. Those two words, by the way, are not the same. Diet, they're often used you know, interchangeably, but diet is simply an inventory of what we're eating. Nutrition is different. Nutrition refers to how much benefit we get from what we're eating. So it's really nutrition that we need to talk about and not just diet. So then later on, I was doing cancer research at the University of Toronto. And again, I became very aware of a literature that was showing nutritional deficiencies, not solely responsible, but being a factor in the development of cancer. We know that with something like vitamin D, it's not the whole story. So just giving vitamin D is not going to solve the problem. It's more complex than that. So basically, also, there's a very nice literature showing that once people have been through a cancer journey and come out from treatment, apparently cured, that they can remain in remission if they actually pay attention to a really nutritious diet, 
and just making sure they've adequate intakes of vitamin D, etc. So going back to the average person again, when we're bombarded with so much different information and even our doctors are telling us, oh, well, you know, we tested your vitamin D levels, they're within range. You say in the book, you know, just because your levels are adequate or within range doesn't mean that they're optimal. So how do you, how do you determine what you need? Where do you go for that information? How do you investigate? Well, it's hard to get it all in one place. And really, that's why I write books is to try and put it together in one place. We really do have to have better education of our healthcare professionals. We turn to those. Those are our most trusted sources of information. And we should be looking to to doctors and other healthcare professionals for guidance here. I have absolutely no difficulty when I'm teaching courses to doctors on diet and nutrition, converting them to thinking this was something extremely important that they hadn't been paying attention to and needed to know more about. And the reason they're so easy to teach is that they have actually studied but forgotten the basis of nutrition, which is biochemistry, the elements the body uses, the mechanisms, the pathways the body uses to prevent depression to help you sleep, to give you maximum energy, etc. All of these are well worked out. And, and doctors do study biochemistry, usually as part of their undergraduate degree. They've forgotten it and they don't think it's relevant to their patients. But when you remind them and you start to show them some of the literature that's there, they are immediately on board. You can see the light bulbs light up around the room as they go oh, I I remember this from my biochemistry classes, but I've forgotten it might apply to my patients. In the book, you ask, could the pandemic be our wake-up call to improve our nutrition? And you're not saying that nutrition can cure COVID or prevent it entirely, but you do say that it's a crucial part of treatment and prevention. There's a missed opportunity here. You know, you give vitamin C as an example. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, just let's take vitamin C as an example. Vitamin C is needed for immunity. We all know that people will grab a little extra vitamin C if they feel they have a cold or flu. What we also know is that those people who are admitted to ICU or admitted to hospital have very low blood levels of vitamin C at scurvy levels. Scurvy is the disease that kills us from lack of vitamin C. Those patients... That's actually, that's incredible. Well, you know, maybe that's something we should talk about because the word vitamin comes from vital amine. Vital means can't live without it. So this has been lost altogether that the essential nutrients, that's all the vitamins, all the minerals, two types of fat that are essential, omega-3s and omega-6s, and nine essential amino acids, the building blocks of protein. They work together. They don't work independently. And they're all required. We get them from our diet, or we don't, as the case may be. We really should not talk about deficiency, because if you were entirely deficient in vitamin D, I'm sorry, you would not be here. You would be dead. So what we're really talking about is insufficiency, insufficient for all of the processes of the body to be working in an optimal way, full on. And why can't we be getting this from our food? That's interesting because you hear that all the time. We used to get everything we needed from our food, didn't we? Well, you know, there's a term in medicine that's used all the time. We talk about evidence-based medicine. 
So you can't make a statement without it being based on evidence. That is the least evidence-based statement anyone could make. We have no proof that our diets always provided everything that we needed in optimal amounts. And in fact, in the book, I have a quotation from the Senate hearings in the 1930s in the States, where they were talking about the depletion of soils by intensive farming of minerals. And it said in that quote, if I paraphrase it, it was basically saying, we do not have stomachs big enough to hold all the food we would now have to consume to get the recommended daily intake of all of these minerals. So really, that's the problem. The problem is we've made assumptions and those assumptions get carried on. And there is really no evidence that they're based on that we ever got optimal amounts of all the nutrients. So why are, why are we being told this then? It is many things, many reasons for that. It's hard to tackle. It's complex. You're looking at all the parts of nutrition being present and correct. Think about it more like your car. You don't just take your car to be serviced to a guy who looks at spark plugs. You want someone who knows the whole car and every part of the car is necessary to keep the car on the road. So it doesn't matter if there's no gas in the tank, no spark plugs or a wheel missing, that car is not moving. It's very similar the way all of the nutrients work together to support immunity, to support cardiovascular health, to support mental health. So basically, it is very complex. We can make some guesses at it based on on more recent science. But I'll tell you this, that there is a debate, and I cover it in the book, the recommended daily intakes. We do know that people are not meeting those needs. We know that in Canada. Recent reports from Stats Canada, 94% of people are not getting enough vitamin D. 94%. Vitamin C, it's 49%. And these are very low estimates. But there is also an acknowledgement daily intakes are too low to actually prevent chronic illness. And those same chronic illnesses like type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, etc., they are the ones that are putting us more at risk of COVID. They are the people who are getting more severe disease. So if the amount in a recommended daily intake is hard to get for everything on a daily basis. How about higher amounts needed to prevent chronic disease? That's even more difficult. Can we go back to vitamin C? I would love for you to talk about the example in the book about where you talk about giving vitamin C to COVID patients. Well, you know, as I said, it is known when your immune system is very active and it's battling an infection, whether it's a virus or any other pathogen, It is using up nutrients at a much faster rate, in particular vitamin C. And so it is known that patients who are hospitalized, particularly in ICU, have low scurvy levels of vitamin C. And that is why generally they are given a little bit of vitamin C. So 125 milligrams is often given in ICU. 125 milligrams is higher than the recommended daily intake. Unfortunately, what's ignored is that other studies show even with that extra vitamin C, they're still at scurvy levels. So really, they are not being administered sufficient vitamin C on which it's just one of the nutrients, but it is one of the nutrients that the immune system depends. So you would hope that vitamin C 
at least would be given to the point where blood levels in these patients came up into the normal range. What I found very surprising is how you mentioned that you talk about how how common malnutrition is in the Western world among people you wouldn't expect to be experiencing malnutrition. Why is that happening? Well, let's pick apart that word for a start. Malness just means bad. In the past, historically, we've always thought of underdeveloped countries, third world countries being malnourished because there was a lack of availability of food. We don't have that problem in the West. We have too much food, but it's non-nourishing. So people are malnourished. So this is very common as diets have deteriorated. And it's been dramatic, I think, over the last hundred years, but really in particular, it's gathered speed in the last 30 years or so. People really are not meeting their nutritional needs. Most, not most, but I would say a large portion of Canadians are eating largely processed diets. And think about that. How are they processed? They're processed to take out a lot of nutrition and often add back in various chemicals and additives that maybe preserve the life of that food, but in fact might actually use up more of the nutrients we need. The food we're eating is under-providing the nutrients, and that is malnutrition. You talk about in the book Meatless Mondays that many health experts you know, encourage a plant-based diet, but you say that's not necessarily the healthiest approach. Can you explain? Well, there's a debate around protein, how much protein we eat. You often hear it said that North Americans eat too much protein. If there's any truth in that, it's that they eat too much protein at one meal. There's a limited amount of processing of protein we can do at one meal. There's a threshold above which we shouldn't go. So if you were ever a believer in the 10 or 12 ounce steaks, I can tell you it was never healthy. Um, A 10 ounce steak divided in three and a third for breakfast and a third for lunch and a third for dinner is a different matter. And we're finding, for example, the amount of protein that we are told we should consume on a daily basis, not that a lot of people are actually doing it, is totally inadequate for things as simple as bone health. Bones are built on a structure of protein, a protein skeleton. And that protein is really what holds the bones up and allows the minerals to be incorporated into the bone. If we're short of protein, we will not be maintaining good bone health. And the amount of protein that's now seen to be needed for optimal bone health is 50% higher than our daily recommended intake of protein. The other thing that is really becoming clear from the research literature is that the older we get, the more protein we need. Now, that's interesting because lots of older people don't like protein, and so they eat less of it. Part of that problem is that they're actually missing some key nutrients that will will digest the protein properly, so they don't feel good on the protein. It doesn't mean that they need less. The problem with plant-based protein is twofold, as I see it. First of all, most plant proteins are not complete proteins. They don't provide all the amino acids that are essential at the same time. And we do need them at the same time. We can compensate for that if we're very careful with our vegetable proteins and we we mix and match them. So for example, we have beans and rice and we can make complete protein that has all amino acids that way. But vegetable protein comes at a cost 
it's high in calories. It's very starchy. So what happens is, let me give you an example. You could have a four ounce chicken breast for dinner, which would be very good, adequate intake of protein for that meal. Or you could eat it in chickpeas, a vegetarian source recommended. But you would need about three and a half cups of chickpeas to get the same amount of protein as you would from the chicken breast. That's a lot of chickpeas. And most people would not feel comfortable after that. It's a lot. And so people don't eat it. So what ends up happening is people either overdo the calories if they were going to pursue that amount of plant-based protein or underdo the protein. You can't have it both ways. There were a couple of points that you made in the book I found really interesting at just applying to my own way of eating is you talked about the fact that people tend to eat protein with their evening meal. Yeah. It's better to be spreading out your protein through all your meals. Exactly. Today. Yeah. I mean, North America is sort of has led the world in changing the way we eat breakfasts. We invented the the breakfast in a box, cereal-based breakfasts. And most people will eat cereal and toast and orange juice. That's entirely carbohydrate. That's entirely virtually protein-free. And so there might be a little milk on the cereal, but it's a trivial amount of protein. That's not what happens in other countries in Europe. I've been in Japan. You go into a hotel on one side, they have a Western buffet for breakfast. And the other side, they have a Japanese. I can tell you the Japanese is traditional diet, has fish, it has all sorts of different types of protein for breakfast. It isn't, and vegetables, it isn't cereal-based. The Western breakfast has morphed. I often say Dr. Kellogg has a lot to answer for in terms of our deteriorating health. And everywhere we've exported that style of eating, you can see health deteriorate. You also talk about fat and how, you know, we've been sort of taught to, we have to cut all fat out of our diet, but that in actual fact, it's healthier to have a little bit of butter, a full fat yogurt with fruit is actually healthier for you. It's not only the little bit of butter, cut the fat. This was because we thought at that time, and this has been disproved since, that the main cause of heart disease was too much fat in the diet, particularly saturated fat. Basically, cut the fat and cut every scrap of fat out. And I can remember thinking, it was before I was actually working in nutrition, and I was saying to myself, was I asleep at biochemistry lectures? Is there no such thing as essential fats? How could you possibly cut out every fat? And you know what happened? The good fats were cut out, and the bad fats, and they were you know, part of the deep fried donut, etc., they were maintained with the deterioration in our health. Tell me what the good fats are for those who don't know. What are the good fats? So the essential fats are the omega-3s and omega-6s. Omega-3 fats come largely from fatty fish. And mostly we took those, you know, since the 1700s, we consumed cod liver oil. What did cod liver oil give us? It gave us the omega-3 fats, vitamin A and vitamin D. Well, we stopped drinking cod liver oil a bit, not surprisingly, because it didn't taste great. And we thought it was no longer important. And there were consequences to that. So fatty fish or fish fish oil supplements are important. The other fats come from largely from seed oils, the omega-6s. And we tend to be overloaded with those. 
uh, these two fats, a lot of nutrition is about balance. So these two fats need to be in balance. And too much of the sixes and too little of the threes is what's happened in our society. So we need to address that balance. Otherwise, we generate a lot of inflammation in the body. So the other thing to talk about was the idea that removing fat from natural foods like dairy would be an advantage. And here it's very interesting what's happened with zero-fat yogurt and zero-fat milk. What happens if you remove the fat from the dairy is you change the hormonal content of the milk. After all, dairy is, comes from a cow that's lactating or has just given birth. It's food for the calf. And in that, there are hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and one called insulin-like growth factor. That's a hormone that is going to stimulate growth, fast growth in the calf. So when you take the fat out, what you take is the estrogen progesterone. You leave behind testosterone, which also is what we call anabolic. It's going to force weight gain and also the insulin-like growth factor. But when you try and market zero-fat yogurt, years ago tried to make yogurt myself from skim milk, you get a very nasty product. It's lumpy, it's watery, it's bitter, it doesn't look very appetizing to sell. The same with milk. When you take the fat out of milk, what you end up with something is gray and watery and unappealing. What happens is that the industry put a lot of extra dried skim milk into the milk to make it look denser and whiter, have more taste. But that, again, is putting more of these two hormones that are driving weight gain, insulin-like growth factor and testosterone. You've altered the actual hormonal balance in the natural food. So I don't ever recommend people have fat reduced. When you start altering the actual chemical composition of a food, that may have negative consequences in the body. If there was one thing that you wish that people were doing to optimize their health, what would that be? I think that's easy. That's easy for me to say. It's the one thing I think that could have the biggest influence on our health. We want to consider carbohydrates. And often people don't understand that fruits and vegetables are carbohydrates. They think of the starchy carbohydrates, the potatoes and the bread and the pasta and the cookies and the muffins, etc. Now, the fruits and vegetables come with lower calorie counts, so we're not bumping up the calories. We're all getting too many calories, most of us. What they also contain is chemicals, chemicals that you can detect. They give color, they give smell, they give aroma, they give flavor. And you know what those chemicals are actually doing in the plant? They are guarding the health of the plant. If you're a plant, you've got a big issue. If you get an infection, you die. You don't have a doctor to run to and say, make me well. So over the evolution of a plant, they've developed chemicals to protect themselves from an infection. After all, they're growing in soil that's teeming with viruses, bacteria, funguses, molds, worms. If they couldn't defend themselves, they would die. And so when we eat a largely plant-rich diet, I don't use the term plant-based because it, it seems to be 
these days synonymous with no animal protein. Plant-rich diet, we're gaining all of that goodness from the fruits and vegetables that may, in fact, protect our immune systems. When we eat largely the starchy foods, we're eating stripped down foods that are stripped of their nutrients, particularly either white bread, the basis for your pizza, the muffins, the pasta, the cookies, etc., the sugar-rich foods. So if we could do one thing to really promote good health, if we could persuade people to swap out most of their calories from starchy carbs and replace them with the fruits and vegetables, then we would really be improving our basic health. I think it's the one thing that could make a huge difference. And improving our basic health, I've seen you, you talk about this, I think, in the healthy brain is it's not just about weight loss. It's improving our blood sugar levels. It's meaning possibly preventing or controlling diabetes. It's improving, possibly preventing dementia. Yeah. The, the myth is that there's a diet that's good for brain health and another diet that's good for heart health or another diet that's good for immune health. It's all the same diet. It's just, we get sick because of what we leave out of our diet. Every bit as much as the bad stuff we put in. There's a very nice quotation from a famous nutritional researcher, Albert St. Georgie, and he was the one, he was a Hungarian-American who identified or isolated vitamin C and, and in, synthesized it in the laboratory. So for which work, he won a Nobel Prize in the 1930s. And he said, a vitamin is something that makes you sick when you don't eat it. And we're doing this all the time. We're leaving the good stuff or we're stripping nutrition out of food. We're using cheap ingredients to make something tasty. And people are consuming that food, not thinking that it's really satisfying a moment's sensory impulses, but it's not actually nourishing our bodies. In your practice, what are the biggest challenges around nutrition that people are facing? What are people coming to you with? They're coming to me with everything. I think during the pandemic, what I'm seeing, which is very gratifying, more and more people saying, I think I can do better for myself. I think I can improve my health. And that seems to be what's driving them to say, how do I do it? Teach me how. That again is really why I've written books, because I try and synthesize the sort of information that I give out. I have very long appointments with people. This isn't done in a 15-minute appointment. Um, that's one of the reasons I think I feel very sympathetic for doctors, because they really don't have the luxury of time with their patients to really go into nutrition in depth. These are really difficult and challenging times for so many people. What is making you feel hopeful and optimistic? Well, I think it's just what we've talked about. I do hope it's a wake-up call for medical schools that say we really have to do something about changing the tactics we use in a medical education. In my opinion, nutrition should be central to a medical education. It applies to every discipline a doctor may go on to practice. It doesn't matter whether it's cardiology or cancer or immunology or allergy. It doesn't matter. Nutrition should be at the core and nutrition education needs to be at the core because of that. So that's one thing I hope comes out of this. The other is what I'm actually seeing is that thinking people are saying, could I do something better? Could I have an improved diet? How do I find out 
whether I have enough vitamin D or not. And those things, I think, are making me hopeful that people are seeking out this sort of information for themselves. That's our hope for the future. Very often, many changes happen in medicine that are driven by public demand and public desire. So if the public want more nutritional education from their, for their doctors, I think the medical schools will respond to that. Your book is called The War Against Viruses, How the Science of Optimal Nutrition Can Help You Win. Aileen Burford-Mason, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast. A production of the Sound Off Media Company.